Hey everybody, this is Ruben, and you're listening to Amazing Stories. Mr. Hayward, allow me to present Dr. Jonathan Willett. Oh dear God, what happened? What, what happened to him? I can hear you, you know. I'm told he somehow got access to the kitchens and tried to tip a pan of boiling water over his own head. <laughs> Is that what you heard? One of the orderlies <laughs> managed to catch his arm in time and stop the worst of it, but he lost his sight and, well, you can see the damage for yourself. You did this to yourself? <laughs> if you say so. Dr Willett, my name is Matthew Hayward. I make a podcast called The Mystery Machine, and we're investigating the case of Charles Dexter Ward. It's all gone. All gone. He's... Gone. Yes. Where did he go? He's gone. He's gone. He's vanished into dust. Into dust. As you can see, he doesn't make very much sense. Actually, that might make some sense. What is that? Is it an invocation? From the Necronomicon? I have seen the face of God. And it is terrible. (laughs) I thought you two would get along famously. Warden! Uh, Yes, I... Time's up now. (laughs) Right. As you can see, Mr. Haywood, Dr. Willett is severely... Doolally. That's how you describe the man who murdered your granddaughter? Very well. Murderously doolally. The reason I brought you here, Mr Hayward, the reason I twisted the warden's arm to allow you in and to allow you to record is that I would like to put a stop to this nonsense for the sake of my family, for my granddaughter's memory, for the sake of truth and sanity. I have no idea what Dr. Willett got up to in America or what caused his mind to snap, but you can very well see that it has snapped and that the death of poor Lucy was a consequence of that. Well, I'm not sure that... You have fabricated a story. We haven't fabricated anything. Well, then you've been misled. Either way, this programme of yours is causing considerable distress and I would like it to stop. You've seen the condition of Dr. Willett. He's not a reliable witness to the events you claim to have uncovered. So, either you stop now, or I will bring to bear the full weight of the courts. And you want me to tell a judge all about the beating I received at the hands of your friend out in the car? I know nothing about that. No, <laughs> of course you don't. And you know nothing about Joseph Kerwin or your wife and your sister's involvement with this the This is what I'm talking about. It's called defamation, Mr. Haywood. It carries severe legal and financial penalties. I'm not the man you want to tangle with in these matters. And yet, here we are. Excuse me? Tangling. I haven't said a single thing about you or your family that can't be corroborated by witnesses or backed up by published material. So, tangle away, because I'm going to continue telling this story. There is no story. None of this is true. Well, that's duly noted and recorded. I'll make sure that everything you've said here is broadcast. I wouldn't want to be accused of censoring you. I think we're done here, aren't we? And at that point, I stormed out of the room. 
I made the storming out as theatrical as I could, because I didn't want either of them to notice that I'd left the recorder on a chair still running. That could have gone better. He'll drop this, one way or another. And even if he doesn't, no one's going to believe a word of it. He says he has witnesses. It's all just fake news. I don't want to be involved again. Yes, I understand. Is it some kind of secret occult language? Whatever it is, I'd heard it on the tape of Willet with Lucy Hawthorne, and a similar sound is present on some of the early Ward Willet tapes, though it's not clear there where it's actually coming from. Is it Ward speaking, or is it an ambient sound in the room? Turning all this over in my mind, I crashed out and slept for about 10 hours solid. I think that's the most I've slept since we started this story. It's certainly the most relaxed I've felt. Why is that, I wonder? Certainly there should be things to worry about. But maybe it all seems so big now, so all-encompassing, that it's impossible to process. I've worried about repercussions, about being sued, or worse. And now all that has come to pass. I've been put in hospital, Kennedy has vanished again, and now here's Dr. Willett, clearly insane and horribly disfigured, and certainly no use as a witness to anything. And Godfrey Tillinghast, one of the most powerful men in the country, is promising to sue us if we continue with the show. So maybe my brain just shut down. When I woke up, it was the middle of the afternoon. There were a bunch of missed calls on my phone and an email from Godfrey Tillinghast's lawyers, assuring me I would be receiving a cease and desist letter via courier in the next few hours. I got dressed and I went into the studio. And when I got there, Kennedy Fisher was waiting for me. Okay, wait a sec. Yep, I'm recording. So, I've just walked into the studio and Kennedy... Everything has to be recorded. This is Ezra. Ezra, this is Matt. Hi. Where were you? The good old US of A. Yes, I know. Where have you been? We landed a couple of hours ago, left in a bit of a rush. What happened? Shepley and Sayers. She's still out there somewhere. Okay, and so where? Amelia Fenner. She had a child. Yes, I know. It's Joseph Kerman's kid. Amelia Fenner last died night. last night. How? Officially of old age. I have my suspicions. We need to find the kid. There's no record of any family. I know. I think she must have given the kid up for adoption. Either that or she left it somewhere to be found. I suspect she wasn't the most responsible of The parents. kid is who they're after. Uh, okay, yes, but slow down because there's no way we can find an I adopted child. I could make child. some calls. Who too? They were done with us, Shepley and Sayers. When you say done... They'd been funding the show because they wanted us to find something. They wanted us to find the next heir to Joseph Kerwin. But we didn't. We did. They didn't know about Amelia Fenner. They probably never even heard the name before you found her. But that's what they were looking for. 
and somehow they now know she had a child. But how? I didn't even know until Shepley or Alan, whoever he is, told me. But they know, which means she's ahead of us. Who's she? Barbara Sayers. What about Shepley? Where's he? Talk to Ezra. Uh, Okay. Where's Shepley? Can we do this in private? Um, Yes, go. Leave me alone. Talk to Ezra. Fine. What's up with her? What happened? You need to turn that off. Well, this is what we do. This is... I don't give a shit. Turn it off. Okay, it's off. If this had been Kennedy, I'd have turned the recorder off without a second thought. But I didn't know Ezra, and I didn't want anything he told me not to be on the record. Shepley is dead. How? What happened? After I spoke to you, I got a buddy of mine to track Kennedy's phone. I thought the phone was off. Yeah, and then it came back on again. Anyway, they were at a motel outside of town. I headed over there, and I didn't plan on doing anything more than confirming this was where Kennedy was and then calling the cops. But then I got to the door, and I heard her screaming. So I busted in. Shepley came at me. He had a knife in his hand. I shot it. The woman, Barbara Sayers, was heading out the back way, and Kennedy was just hunched in the corner, her head tucked between her knees. She was catatonic or something. I never saw anything like that. Non-responsive. So I stayed with her and got her out of there, rather than go after Sayers. Ezra said there was a strong smell of incense in there and some symbols drawn on the floor in chalk. And it was his impression that some kind of ritual had been taking place. He says Kennedy wasn't speaking or responding, but she seemed to be physically okay. He put her in his car and drove away. What he should have done is called the cops and faced the music, because he supposedly shot George Shepley in self-defence. Ezra, for whatever reason, decided not to do that. Instead, he drove back to Kennedy's hotel, collected her things and got them both on the first plane to London. I don't think George Shepley had a knife. I think that's why Ezra didn't call the cops. Maybe he thought Shepley was armed. Maybe he knew he wasn't, but what he walked in on made him... I don't know. But I think he saved Kennedy's life. And if we're even half right about what Shepley and Sayers and the others have been up to, then I really don't care about the cost of that. It seemed to be a relief for Ezra to talk to someone about what had happened. I thanked him for rescuing Kennedy, and then we came back into the studio. 1962. That's when Caroline Hughes and Eliza Tillinghast both got pregnant and they fled the New Forest Coven. Amelia Fenner said that the police raid started up almost immediately, supposedly on Godfrey Tillinghast's say-so. Well, he seems to be back on board with the whole thing now. Because he had control of the Ipcoia bloodline. His wife and his sister are both carrying Kerwin's children. He didn't need Kerwin anymore. Anyway, not the point. Amelia Fenner told you that Kerwin left the coven within a week or so. Supposing that was his window, he'd lost track of the two potential heirs, so he needed insurance. Amelia Fenner. And she said that she left the coven soon after that. She said she hooked up with some witches over in Winchester, right? Mm-hmm. There's a story here from the local paper in Winchester, a baby being left on the steps of a hospital in 1963. Well, that's a leap. It's right. How do you know? I don't know, but I know. It, it feels right. What happened to the kid? It goes into the system? Which means it disappears without trace. Nope. It was a girl. They called it Destiny. The nurses at the hospital. Thank you, hippies. 
So a girl called Destiny, born in Winchester in 1963. There is one of them, unsurprisingly. Orphanage, foster homes, married a guy called Gibson in 1985 in Chelmsford, divorced in 1991, remarried in 1996 to a man named Cartwright. They had a daughter in 1999. Well, it's not going to be Destiny thereafter, then. It's the daughter. Melody. Oh, Jesus. Melody Cartwright. And yes, that's who they're after. Destiny's dead. How? Car accident, like Charles Ward's mother. And Lucy Hawthorne's mother was out of the picture, too. Is this a pattern? Maybe. Where is Melody? She's a student here at UCL. She's studying the archaeology of the Middle East. We're outside one of the halls of residence at University College London, where Melody Cartwright lives during term time. I'm waiting outside with Ezra Whedon while Kennedy goes in to see if she can locate Melody. Matt, Ezra, this is Akuma. She's Mm -hmm. Melody's roommate. Akuma, can you tell these guys what you told me? Um, Melody's away recording our podcast. Really? Yeah, this morning a man and a woman approached us just here as we were going to the library. They wanted to interview Melody for a show they're making. What do these people look like? I don't really... I guess, like, people who make podcasts. Casual, maybe 30. White. A man and a woman. There wasn't anyone else with them. A woman in her 60s or a a well-dressed man who would be older. I didn't see anyone else. Tell them what the show's called. Oh, I think Mystery Machine... Is that right? Is that a podcast? Do you have a number for Melody or an email address? Actually, any contact details. I already got them. Thank you. Sorry to drag you away from your work. Is Melody in trouble? No, don't worry. She's fine. Thanks, Akuma. We're too late. Yeah, I tried the phone and it's going straight to voicemail. My guess would be they've dumped it already. Where would they take her? Kennedy. I need to talk to you. I'm here. In the studio. I need to tell you what I saw. Okay. I'm recording. This is a lot bigger than we thought. And I don't just mean telling guest involvement or whoever else. You mean what Shepley said? Can we not call him that? George Shepley was a nice man who didn't exist. This was Dr. Allen. Yeah, okay. But no, I don't just mean what he said. I'm talking about what I saw. He said he was going to show you the world as it really is. Yeah. And before that, in the tunnels under the trailer park. What was in the hole? You went into that last chamber and there were those metal trap doors... In the floor, there was water down there. You opened one up. Stop. I can't describe what it was. I can't find the words. No, that's not right. It's not me. It's it's not a vocabulary issue. I don't have the language. That theory of linguistics that we can't talk about something that we don't have a word for. If language can't describe it and the brain can't really... You can have it in your head, but you can't get a firm grasp of it without language. Uh There's no language to describe this thing. What was in those pits were creatures. Not animals. Not human. It was like... It was like they existed in more than three dimensions. 
You ever have a migraine? Yeah. And you get that thing just before it hits where your vision goes weird and you can't focus in the center. It's like the, the middle of your vision goes blurry. Yeah, I know what you mean. So that's what it's like looking at this thing. My eyes are taking it in, but my brain can't make sense of it. So it won't render it as a solid, distinctive shape. It's like I have an impression of it, of how it made me feel. But I can't quite picture it in my mind. Okay, so how did it make you feel? I want to say scared, but actually that's not right. What I felt was more than that. I felt... wonder. What do you mean? I was awestruck. And not because of how it looked, but because of what it was. And of course, I had no conscious idea of what it was. But at the same time, I knew what I was looking at. <sighs> Believe me, I know how this sounds. But I think I was looking at something like God. This was a creature. Uh, in a pit, in a, in a cavern, underneath a trailer park. Yeah, like I say, I know how it sounds. But I looked at it, and it seemed to invade my mind. It, it changed me. How? I think I experienced, for a few moments, total madness. It was like I was suddenly aware that everything in reality was a lie. And none of it made the slightest bit of sense. Science, religion, culture... It was like this disjointed white noise and none of it connected up and none of it really existed. Like it was all just a series of snapshots of something that I'd previously stitched together to, to make a, this fabric of reality. And now it had all come apart. Like it was ripped into tiny shreds and there was no way to put it back together again. And then I woke up in hospital. And you were back to normal? Functionally, yeah. But honestly, I don't know. I feel like I know what reality is, and I recognize it. This studio, you sitting there, this coffee cup. But at the same time, I kind of know that it's all fake. It's all this intricate veil that hides what's really there. But you don't know what's behind the veil? I got a glimpse with Dr. Allen and Barbara Sayers. They performed a ritual just before Ezra got me out of there. And I don't know, maybe they dosed me with something. There was a city on a plane. A, a, an old city? Yeah, I don't know. And the creatures were there again, moving around in the streets. But again, I couldn't quite make sense of them. And there was something else. Something enormous behind the city, kind of towering over it. A structure? No, no, a thing. Again, I can't describe it, but it was alive and powerful and it just hated. It had hate coming off it in waves, like it just exuded hate. Do you think it was some kind of flashback? <laughs> Al Hazred claimed in the Necronomicon that he had found an underground city in the desert, that there were beings there that predated us. I think us. it was that, but I don't think it was in the past. 
I think it's there. I think it's what's really there. It's like the reality we see and experience is a projection we're given to cover the real reality, which is that place and those creatures and that thing. That's what I saw. Do you want to call the men in white coats? I think you should talk to someone, regardless of what this was, what you saw, real or not. And maybe it was drug-induced from a fungus that was in that cavern or something. And what comes of me repeating all this to a shrink? Well, I don't know. Then maybe we can ask Charles Dexter Ward or Dr. Willett. They lock you up. Yeah, well, you're not them. That may just be wishful thinking. Well, you can function in the world. Only because I have to, because I have to know what this is, the truth of it. Then we'll find it. Yeah. I need to sleep. Kennedy went home. Ezra went with her because he doesn't have anywhere to stay here. And I was glad she wasn't going to be on her own. I was worried about Kennedy. I don't know what really happened in those tunnels or in the room with Dr. Allen and Barbara Sayers. I trust that Kennedy believes she saw those things. But I'm mindful of what Eleanor Peck said about the power of belief. This Ipkuaya stuff is like a religion for these people. And plenty of religions involve visions or hallucinations, even drug-taking. Kennedy is smart and level-headed, but she clearly experienced something that shook her sanity in some way. To be honest, at this point, my concern was more for her well-being than for the truth or otherwise of what she saw. But there was nothing I could do about any of this. Melody Cartwright was gone. We had no more leads to follow up. The story had run aground. After everything we'd discovered, the truth about Lucy Hawthorne's murder, the story of Ipkuaya, the ongoing existence of a conspiracy, we hadn't really solved anything. We'd exposed the top layer of a story, but I knew there was a lot more under there and we had no real way to get at it. And we knew now that there were powerful forces ranged against us. We'd been useful to them for a while, but now they were going to do everything they could to stop us going further. I set myself the task of editing this last episode together and trying, somehow, to find a way to end this story. Can I help you? My name's Matthew Hayward. I'd like to see the warden, please. As I was putting this episode together, it occurred to me that there might be one question that I could finally get an answer to. I wanted to know what happened to Charles Dexter Ward. This whole thing started with him vanishing from a locked cell in an asylum in Rhode Island. Dr. Willett was the last person to see him, and given everything Willett had been through, I thought he might now have some answers as to what really happened to his patient. So I went back to Broadmoor, and I spoke to the warden. He was reluctant, to say the least, to let me see Willett. So I played in the recording I'd made at our last meeting. Hi, Mark. Yeah. Hello, Dr. Willett. I'm Matthew Hayward. We met the other night. We're alone here. The warden can't hear us. I want to know what happened to Charles Dexter Ward. Poor Charles. Uh, he's gone, you know. Yes, 
Yes, he disappeared from his cell. In... No, no, no. He's gone long before that. I didn't realize it's stupid of me. I couldn't see it. The man in that cell wasn't Charles. I don't understand. Who was it? It was him. It. Joseph Kerwin? No, no, no. There's no Kerwin either. Not for a long time. Ipku Aya. They're all Ipku Aya moving between bodies. He called me, Charles. This is a recording. I made recordings. Uh, yes, I have some of them. He sent me a letter and then I called him. I've read the letter. The one where he said, if you see Dr. Allen, you must kill him and dissolve his body in acid. <laughs> Dr. Allen is dead. No. Y yes, he was shot dead in Providence. <laughs> dead, you say? No, on a slab, maybe, for now, but not dead. So this phone call, after the letter... That was the last time I spoke to Charles. You had him committed. You were his doctor. But that wasn't Charles. On the night he disappeared, you were in his room. And that's when I understood. That wasn't him. That's why I did it. Did what? Because I'd seen the experiments, I'd seen what was in those pits. You're talking about what was under the trailer park? For clarity, Dr. Willett is nodding. Who's there? There's no no one, no one. I'm recording the conversation. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I saw the face of God. You saw something in those pits? I saw demons or angels. I, I think they're the same. Dr. Willett. Dr. Willett, what happened in the room with Charles Dexter Ward that night? It wasn't him. It hadn't been him for a long time. The night of the phone call, that was him. And then after that, Charles stopped existing and it took over. He told you this? Dr. Willard is nodding again. Nodding, nodding, nodding. And what did you do when he told you? Same as when it had Lucy Hawthorne. You stabbed him. Stab, stab, stab. And they all turned to dust. The dust. They they said there was a lot of dust in the cell. Ashes to ashes. Are you saying he actually turned to dust? A vessel without life, decomposed but held together. And when it leaves, all that remains is dust. You stabbed him and he turned to dust. So they thought he'd vanished. But Lucy Hawthorne didn't turn to dust. There was a post-mortem on her body. <laughs> Dr. Willett, Lucy Hawthorne did not turn to dust. They had her body. A body, but whose body? <laughs> and I poured boiling water over my head? <laughs> You're saying the body wasn't hers or that the post-mortem was fake? It's all fake. All of it, all this, this room, this place, this life. It's all just an illusion. Because we can't see what's really there or... or, or well, well, what? Because we'll go insane. <laughs> I threw up on the pavement as soon as I got outside. I didn't believe what I'd heard. I couldn't believe it, or, or I wouldn't. But I knew it fitted with what Kennedy had told me and what Dr. Allen and Barbara Sayers and Godfrey Tillinghast and whoever else believed. This version of a world that's completely alien to everything that I can see and touch and taste and hear. 
And of course, like any religion, these people have an explanation for why I can't see the world as they do, because I'm not woke or enlightened or whatever, because I don't have faith. And so I can't disprove any of this any more than I can really prove it. I called Kennedy, but she didn't pick up, so I got into a cab and went to her flat. She didn't answer the door. I had a key because she'd had me watering her plants while she was in America, so I let myself in. Kennedy wasn't there. Neither was Ezra. I don't even know if they'd gone back there when they left the studio. There was no luggage, no sign anyone had been by. The last few days' post was still on the doormat. I don't know where Kennedy is. This story's over now. I don't know what happens to Red Hook or to the podcast now. I'm just going to put this out there and see what happens. I'm Matthew Hayward. And this was The Mystery Machine. of the Mystery Machine podcast. We're taking a break for the moment, but we'll be checking messages, so please speak after the tone. Hey, it's me. Sorry to take off without, you know, weird times. Anyway, Ezra and I are in Baghdad. I know, right? But we've tracked down Melody Cartwright. She's here with Barbara Sayers and some other guy who's all covered in bandages. We've been watching them for a couple of days, and they've mostly stayed inside their hotel, but this morning they headed out in a pickup with all their luggage and a local guide. We think they're headed up to Mosul, to the ruins of Nineveh. We're going to go out after them, but I need you to get me some recording equipment couriered out to Mosul because my machine just gave up the ghost and I can't find anything reliable here. Call me back on this number as soon as you get this. I'm running out to meet a guide. Ezra wants a word with you, okay? Uh, call me back. I'll be back in an hour. Mr. Haywood? It says Wheaton. Delete this message. You lost. In H.P. Lovecraft's The Case of Charles Dexter Ward, adapted by Julian Simpson, Matthew Haywood was played by Barnaby Kay. Kennedy Fisher, Jana Carpenter. Charles Dexter Ward, Samuel Barnett. Young Charles Dexter Ward, Harry Kay. Dr. Willett, Mark Baisley. George Shepley, Adam Godley. Claire Rushmore, Madeline Potter. Contact and Warden, Ben Crow. Alice and Waitress, Samantha Dakin. Barbara Sayers, Penny Downey. Tyler Green, Alex Lanapekin. Sylvester Bertwistle and Tregore, Nathan Osgood. Ezra Whedon, Alan Armstrong. Eleanor Peck, Nicola Walker. Akuma and Nurse, Sherelle Skeet. Amelia Fenner, Susan Jameson. Dr. Lyman, Stephen McIntosh. Lucy Hawthorne, 
Phoebe Fox, and Godfrey Tillingast, Richard Cordery. Sound design was by David Thomas. The director was Julian Simpson. The case of Charles Dexter Ward was produced by Karen Rose and was a Sweet Talk production for BBC Radio 4. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to join us tomorrow for yet another amazing story.